Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Well, a very good morning to all of you, and thank you for braving the cooler weather and being here in church today. It's a great privilege for me to be here with you again, and I've been praying that the Lord will speak to us together, Um, and I hope you really get the message that it's preacher and congregation together under the authority and the instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come together as people wanting to hear his word today. I need to hear it and to be obedient to it as much as any of you do. Um, Mark left me a pretty long scripture reading for today. You've been working through Luke's gospel, I think. I've got Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 71 which is a pretty long passage. Be of good cheer. I'm not going to attempt to preach on all of that. However, the Lord's word is way more important than my word. We need to hear his voice much more strongly than we need to hear any human voice. And so I'm going to read the whole passage together uh, for us together this morning. I hope that's not the case at Windsor Road, but I know churches where the public reading of Scripture on a Sunday is the only Scripture intake that some people ever get. Um, So it's good for us to hear the Word. And I remember what Paul said to Timothy, pay attention to the public reading of Scripture. And in the Revelation, um, we've got a blessing for those who read aloud Um, the revelation in that case specifically in front of a congregation and a blessing for those who hear. So we're going to read this passage of Scripture together and it will give us some important context too for what I want to focus on a little later on. Here's the word of the Lord, Luke chapter 22 from verse 39. And you can follow along just... um, by listening, or if you've got your Bible or a device with a Bible on it, you're welcome to follow along there too. Luke chapter 22 from verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, presumably a familiar place to the Lord Jesus and where he often went, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up. 
and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. And may the Holy Spirit, 
that Diana was reminding us about earlier on. Take this word and bury it deep within our hearts and our lives where it can do its transforming work. As I hinted earlier, I just want to focus on one verse out of this important story as the life of Jesus is rushing towards the climax of his crucifixion the next day. It's verse 42, if you're following um, in your Bibles, Luke 22, verse 42. Jesus' prayer out there on the Mount of Olives. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Take this cup from me. Praise Jesus. Well, what does a cup mean? I think we all know that we're not talking about a physical cup that's got tea or coffee or something in it. Jesus is speaking about something much more profound. Some of you may have heard of a Greek philosopher called Socrates. Anybody? <laughs> One, two, a couple. Well, in the year 399 BC, Socrates, a famous Greek philosopher, was arrested on trumped-up charges of corrupting the morals of the youth of Athens. These were trumped-up charges, and the truth was that the powers that be just couldn't stand Socrates and the way that he put his finger on some issues that made them very uncomfortable, much like Jesus was unpopular with these religious leaders that we read about in our passage this morning. And Socrates was sentenced to death, and he was to die, as was customary in those days, by drinking a cup of the poison hemlock that worked slowly on you, progressive paralysis, until eventually it stopped your heart dead. It's a stirring story, if you haven't ever read it. Um, and if you did want to get any kind of introduction into Greek philosophy, yeah, I know, sounds terribly boring to most of you, but that's one of the most gripping stories out of the classical world, Socrates drinking the cup of hemlock. Or maybe if you're not into Socrates, some of you are a bit more into things like the Princess Bride, does that ring a few more bells? <laughs> um, and do you remember that famous poison scene between the man in black, Wesley, and Vizzini? And as the scene goes, there are two cups um, on the table between the man in black and Vizzini. And there's a a poison called Iocane that Wesley apparently has put into one of the cups and he leaves the choice to Vizzini to choose which cup to drink. You remember the whole story there. I can clearly not choose the cup in front of me or I can clearly not choose the cup in front of you. I don't know how they memorized such a piece of dialogue as well as they did. It's brilliant if you haven't ever watched it. Um, but the cup to be drunk um, spelt death. Wesley, of course, was in a good position because he'd spent two years building up an immunity to this poison. 
So it didn't matter which cup he drank. No, but I'm giving you spoilers. And when Jesus says, take this cup from me, it's a similar kind of cup as face Socrates, as was on the table between Vizzini and the man in black, Wesley. A cup that represented struggle, pain, suffering, nothing as mild, we might say, as Socrates' hemlock or the Iacane in front of Vizzini. But Jesus looked ahead to the next day. This was his cup. And I'm sure Jesus was well enough aware because crucifixion was a common enough, though ghastly and cruel means of execution in the Roman world. Jesus knew what lay ahead of him. Anybody seen Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ? Um, which gives us a pretty gut-wrenching understanding of the crucifixion. Nothing's sanitized there. You can see the horror that lay before Jesus. Maybe Jesus was thinking ahead to the betrayal and the denial and the desertion of his friends or his experience of dereliction on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And more even than all that, this cup that lay before Jesus involved him taking on his own sinless shoulders the sins of the whole world. Little wonder that Jesus cries out, take this cup from me. Who wouldn't? if you knew that lay ahead of you. And yet, take this cup from me. It's only part of Jesus' prayer. Because the whole prayer reads, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I had a professor who used to remind us fairly regularly something that I've never forgotten. I fear that I've forgotten a lot of other things that he said to us, but this stuck in my mind and it's remained with me over the years, referring to this prayer of Jesus, take this cup from me, nevertheless not my will but yours be done. My professor said, the test of all true prayer are you getting this? The test of all true prayer is not, did you get what you asked for? But, did you submit? The test of all true prayer is not, did you get what you asked for? But, did you submit? Think for a moment about what the result would have been if Jesus' prayer, take this cup from me, had been answered in the positive. If the Father said, okay, Jesus, you don't need to go through with this. 
Think of the results. Maybe the situation would be much like what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians when he asks his readers to imagine what it would be like if the resurrection had never taken place. Your faith is futile, says Paul in that context. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Or what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 about us being dead in our transgressions and sins. Or a little later, same chapter, verse 12, without hope and without God in the world. If Jesus' prayer, Father, take this cup from me, had been answered, where would we be? I can guarantee you we wouldn't be sitting in Windsor Road Baptist Church this morning. Take this cup from me. It's not the whole prayer. Because Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. The test of all true prayer is not, did you get what you asked for? And we can be pretty grateful that that's not the test of true prayer. The test of all true prayer is, did you submit? Now, this has got huge implications for us as Christ followers and hopefully as people of prayer. I've heard people say that if you pray... Lord, if it's your will, please do such and such. But that's a kind of a cop-out. That's a demonstration that you don't have enough faith. Um, you're adding this condition, if it's your will, so that just in case your prayer doesn't get answered the way you want it to, you've got something to fall back on. You can just say, well, obviously it wasn't God's will, therefore my prayer didn't work. I've heard people say that. To me, if you add, if it's your will to your prayer, that's a lack of faith in your part. If your prayer doesn't work and you sort of cover it by the condition, if it's your will, then you've, you've kind of got an escape hatch if your prayer doesn't get answered the way you wanted it to be. People tell you that you don't have enough faith to name it and claim it, which is what apparently we're supposed to do, according to some people. We can always back off and say, if it's your will, well, it couldn't have been God's will, so it wasn't my prayer that was the problem, it was God's will that was determining something different. I want to suggest to you, however, that far from being a cop-out, the greatest statement that you as a Christ follower and as a prayer to God can make is, 
if you are willing, if it's your will. That's not a cop-out. That's a statement of the deepest faith. Because you're wanting to align yourself with God's will. It's not my will that I want to be done, but God's will. We're getting off the throne of our lives when we say, if it's your will, your will be done, not mine. We're getting off the throne of our lives. We're handing the control of our lives to God, who knows much better than we do. We acknowledge that our perspectives are limited. We acknowledge that much of our praying is mixed with some degree of self-interest. I mean, without submission to God's will, isn't it true that a lot of our praying really is self-interested praying? It's what I want God to do for me or for somebody else, what I want to do. But when we're willing to say, not my will, but yours be done. When we're willing to say, Father, if you are willing, we're making the enormous statement of faith that, that's involved in aligning ourselves with his will, in recognizing the weakness, the limited perspectives, sometimes the selfishness of our will. We're being prepared to be the answers to our own prayers when we say, if it's your will, because we're aligning ourselves with God's will. And when that happens, he uses us sometimes in surprising ways for his honor and glory. I have cautions when I hear people saying things like, Prayer works. And this is how you can get prayer to work. You know, prayer is like some kind of magic potion that we can use to get our way. No, that's not true. God works. And prayer draws us into his plans and his purposes and his will so that we're partners with him in accomplishing his great mission to the world and we're leaving deliberately our own agendas behind. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. When we ask according to his will, that's the crucial issue. That's what's meant by praying in Jesus' name. You know, it's customary to hear people when they pray coming to the end of the prayer and saying, in Jesus' name. It's a good thing to add to the end of your prayer, but don't understand those words as just a few little magic words that you add on to the end of your prayer to make your prayer work. 
That's not the case at all, because to pray in Jesus' name is to pray in accordance with his will. It's to pray according to the plan that he has. It's to step out of the way ourselves and to pray for the glory of Jesus. The attitude, not my will, but yours be done, acknowledges that God is speaking truly when he says back in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 9, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isn't that exactly what we were taught by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Not my will, but yours be done. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says very frankly that in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for. That's the truth. We don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. To me, this perspective sheds a lot of light on what we sometimes call unanswered prayer. You know, when the times you didn't get what you asked for. What's going on there when your prayer didn't work? Um, I've got some friends, and I'm thinking of one man in particular who has a deep, deep struggle with this. He told me just a week or two back, there are so many unanswered prayers in my life. I prayed for this and that and the other thing, some of them very deep and close to his heart. And he said, these prayers have not been answered. What is God doing when we don't get what we ask for? One author offers these thoughts. He says, in other words, don't stop praying. Even if our exact petitions are never granted to us in this life, the very fact that unanswered prayer drives us to spend more time drawing close to God and begging him for deliverance is itself a gift of grace. By perseverance in prayer, our hearts become gradually more conformed to the will of God, whatever it may be. Like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, who asked the Father to take the cup of suffering away from him, if it were at all possible, unanswered prayer teaches us 
to learn to say with Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. This is no small gift. For in these seven words, not my will, but yours be done, are hidden the secret of holiness and happiness. We can hardly miss the contrast, can we, in our reading this morning between Jesus on the one hand and the disciples on the other. Jesus prays, sorrowful. Um, In Mark's gospel, it says Jesus um, says, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. And we're told in our reading that the disciples were also sorrowful. But their sorrow so overwhelmed them that they went to sleep instead. Prayer for them was the last thing that their bodies, their minds, their spirits could bear. But what a contrast there is when Jesus got up from prayer and went back to the disciples who he had asked to stand with him in prayer. He found them sleeping. Why are you sleeping, says Jesus? Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus responds to his anguish by praying. The disciples respond to their anguish by falling asleep. There was a time in my life when I think I looked down my nose at the disciples and I thought, these stupid guys, you know, they had the Lord with them for three years. They had all that instruction from Jesus himself, and yet they just did not get it. And it's kind of fashionable to jump on the bandwagon and to point our fingers at the disciples. If we'd been there, surely we would have been much better. I think I'm getting old enough to realize that I'm much more like the disciples than unlike them. And that I need those kind of constant reminders and rebukes to keep myself on the right track. The same pressures that drove Jesus to pray so fervently put the disciples in their anguish and their sorrow into what I'm sure was a a troubled sleep. Sleeping for sorrow, Luke calls it. In verse 45. And while Jesus accepts whatever the suffering that lies before him will bring, because if it's the will of the Father, not my will but yours be done, the disciples show by their prayerlessness what kind of aftermath is coming. Betrayal. Denial. Fleeing. You know, we get down on Peter a bit. At least he's the only one that follows Jesus, though, at a safe distance and ends up in that courtyard warming himself by the fire. At least he's still close to Jesus, even if he denies that he knows the Lord three times. I got an email just yesterday from a list that I subscribed to that I... I thought was providential. Um, In the middle of the email were these paragraphs. The process 
of asking and receiving or not receiving is a unique way to relate to the Father as a child and to Jesus as a friend, a way to cooperate with the promptings of the Spirit in bringing about good in the world. The universe God chose to make is one where God frequently, if not primarily, works through prayer. John Wesley went so far as to say that God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. God's power, this writer says, flows through our prayer like electricity through a wire. Why? God certainly doesn't need us. The best I can figure is that God likes doing stuff together. Now, there's some profound insights there, too. And while God likes doing his will, and our will often may not align with his, what he offers us is an invitation to join him in his work. We don't know how to pray as we should. I know that. I know that when I pray, my perspectives are so limited. I don't know all the facts. And I know how selfish I am. I know how often my requests are made because they're in my own interest. I hope that I'm learning to say goodbye to some of those things. And yet to sense the invitation, knowing the weakness of my prayers. Sense the invitation that God offers us, that by praying, if it's with the posture, not my will but yours be done, God is actually inviting us into his work in this world, his plans, his operation, that I often can't see. I can't see the end from the beginning. I don't know what God is doing in a lot of things. But isn't that part of what faith is? Trusting him rather than myself, leaning, as Proverbs reminds us, not on our own understanding. The prayer that says, Lord, this is what I would like to see happening, you know that. But at the same time, I acknowledge I don't know how to pray as I should. Not my will, but yours be done. That's putting us in the position where God wraps us up in his purposes and for his glory works in the world in ways that we might not expect, but for his own honor and glory and far better than we could do. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. The test of all true prayer is not, did you get what you asked for, but did you submit? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, our Father, we can all say our Father. We have the same Father that makes us
brothers and sisters, same dad. And even though many of us may have had difficult experiences with human fathers, we come to you as the model of what fatherhood should be like. We pray that your name will be hallowed in our lives, treated with the reverence that it deserves. We pray, Lord, for the coming of your kingdom, for the breaking of all the powers of the empires of this world, that they might bow before your kingship. May your kingdom come in our world and in our lives as individuals too. May your will be done on earth, including in our lives, just as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Lord, you know that we need these things. You know what we need to stay alive and to flourish. And we ask you humbly that you will give us these things. And we ask for your forgiveness. We owe you so much, Lord. And we pray that as we experience your forgiveness, you will give us the strength and help us just to see that it's the logical conclusion of your forgiving us that we should forgive one another. And we pray, Lord, that you will not lead us into the time of testing and temptation. We know how weak we are, but we pray that you may deliver us from the evil one. And in words that were probably added somewhat later, but from early in the history of the church, we're part of this wonderful prayer for yours not ours, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.